For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Voting has already begun on State Question 820 to legalize recreational marijuana. If it passes, Oklahoma would join 22 others in legalizing the adult use of cannabis. The final results will be tallied on March 7th, but with no other elections on the ballot, the big question is going to be turnout. So, Ryan, what is the prediction according to supporters? Well, there really isn't a prediction. This is a unique election. We've never had a standalone state question election in state history that I can find. This is the first time nationally that recreational marijuana is on a ballot by itself. So that in and of itself is 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 new. And trying to figure out what turnout is going to be is, is a very difficult thing. Uh, but, you know, kind of leading up to this, you know, we're, we're starting to see kind of the escalation of the fear mongering uh, on the no campaign. Uh, and I've talked a lot about the revenue and the benefits of this on here, but I want to just talk about a couple of things. One, there's this assertion that's just, just patently false, uh, that state question 820 makes it harder for courts to intervene, to remove kids from dangerous situations. That is just an outright lie for anybody that's saying it, because in fact, the language in state question 820 is the exact same language that's in current law. The government shouldn't be able to kick your door in and take your kids away just because you've got beer in the refrigerator. The same way the government shouldn't be able to kick your door in and take away your kids just because you have legal marijuana in your house. Now, if you don't, if you're using that beer in your refrigerator or the marijuana in a way that creates a danger to those kids, courts can act. They can intervene. They can intervene today and they can intervene after state question 820 passes. The language and the standard for the courts is exactly the same. Uh, and as a dad who responsibly and legally uses marijuana, it's it's kind of terrifying to think that the opposition out there is of a mind that I should have my kids removed from my house just because I'm legally and responsibly using marijuana today. Neva. Well, what I think is fascinating is what you said, Ryan, about the fact here's a freestanding election on mm-hmm. an issue that has been um, so much on the forefront of discussion now for so many months. I mean, even though the campaigns, you know, kind of lulled and, and didn't really kick in until right mm-hmm. here at the end. Um, and as I talked about last week, I think by and large, um, if you were to take a snapshot, I haven't seen any polling, but I think what we have is kind of jump ball. I think that it could go either way. I think at this point, uh, uh, if someone were polling, I think it would be relatively close. I mean, and just those folks, if you were polling people, likely to vote next Tuesday. Um, now, all of that said, uh, the backdrop is, I mean, from last November, when there were four states that had the issue on the ballot, uh, two, two passed, two failed. Mm-hmm. Maryland and M- Missouri passed. Uh, North Dakota, South Dakota rejected uh, the idea of uh, adult, adult use legalized cannabis. So, so we've got a situation in Oklahoma now where it appears that it's very much like what we saw in June 2018 with the medical marijuana vote. I mean, you had you had a kind of a division in terms of where support was for both sides. And I think what we see now, from all indications, it appears to me that the, on the no side, it's, it's clearly... Uh, very much uh, the rural communities in Oklahoma that uh, are the are the ta- target audience. Uh, rural Oklahoma, even on the medical marijuana vote, uh, uh, were the areas where there was the least um, least support uh, leading up to that vote uh, several years ago. So, uh, medical marijuana passed with 57% of the vote, and when you think about that. It, it, that number seems probably larger than it m- one might assume when you think that 
it was on a ballot with a gubernatorial primary mm-hmm. uh, in both parties. So you had uh, you had a uh, what I would consider a usually good turnout of nine hundred thousand votes or whatever it was somewhere in that vicinity. And you and out of that, you had twenty thousand folks that came and just voted on the medical marijuana issue, didn't care about anything else on the ballot. I think that will be a big question: is the identified votes uh, through the uh, process with the petition uh, and the targeting done by the yes folks will they have uh, will they have an advantage over uh, uh, less of a campaign on the no side in terms of identified votes I, I think there's probably some aggressive work going on on that on that front right now but the clock's ticking the clock's ticking down and I think it will be fascinating to see turnout will probably dictate I mean it's an urban rural uh, in some large measure I think uh, fight but um, but I think that given the groups that are behind the no the no campaign you would have to say that that appears to be where they've really targeted their messaging and targeted a great deal of their resources well I think there's going to be a lot of things that bring voters to the ballot box for different reasons I think there will be people that want to see expanded regulation people that like the revenue people and for the no side as well I mean there are going to be different reasons the thing that really brought me to this to begin with was the criminal justice reform element of state question 820 um, and you know I think it, it was really I thought it was really cool I'm, and I'm not saying this to paint him in a bad light at all but I thought it was really cool that Governor Kevin Stitt a conservative Republican governor in in a, in a state, stood on a debate stage in, in front of all of his fellow Oklahomans and his parents uh, last last fall and admitted to using marijuana in college. Well, so did I. And guess what? <laughs> so did you know thousands of other uh, college students. Um, the difference is, is that most of us didn't get caught. Um, and if we had got caught, our lives would be very different. I think that the governor's life could have been very different. My life could have been very different if I'd been caught. Um, and I just don't think that we should have a criminal justice system that's based on luck where, you know, some folks are able to do something and and mention it on a gubernatorial debate stage much later in their life. And, you know, folks just kind of chuckle about it because it's like, well, of course college kids smoke weed. Uh, but other people, other people have their lives ruined and turned upside down by this. And I know that people say, well, nobody's getting in trouble for small amounts of marijuana anymore in 2021, which is the most recent data that we've got 4,500 Oklahomans were arrested for small amounts of marijuana. And for every one of those arrests, that means hours off the street for police officers that could be doing something else, uh, you know, investigating and, and fighting serious crime. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's the, that's the thing that I hope a lot of voters really pay attention to whenever they walk into the ballot box. I know that that's what drew me to the state question 820 campaign to begin with. Well, and you know, it will be interesting also, I mean, in terms of that, that argument and that information uh, doesn't seem to be something that's been widely in the mix in terms of kind of the general campaign. Um, and I think as, as, as I've talked about before, when you talk about special elections, very targeted elections, um, the information is out there. I will say that both sides have done a have done a good job trying to carry their message and trying to uh, get their information out to persuade voters uh, for those folks that are still thinking about it and haven't made up their mind. I would contend that's probably a relatively small number at, at this point. But nevertheless, the information is there. I think some of these arguments, uh, certainly on the yes side, uh, the uh, the money argument of how much will come into mm-hmm. the state coffers and what that will do. When you really start to break that down, I mean, I've heard a lot of uh, I've heard a lot of folks that uh, 
have kind of scratched their head and, and wondered, you know, is that really a valid argument? By the same token, you know, I'm sure you hear on the other side, Ryan, uh, folks that, uh, you know, uh, scratch their head with some of these arguments, just like uh, that you've mentioned in the past, that are being made by the uh, uh, by the no side. So at long and short, voters have an opportunity to make their voice heard by going to the polls, uh, early voting uh, Thursday and Friday uh, this week. Um, there will not be early voting on Saturday. So early turnout, absentee voting, and then day of voting, all of that uh, will culminate on Tuesday. And I think it will be fascinating. And I think uh, from a larger standpoint, this will be something that will get some national attention mm -hmm. because of the fact that it's been, as I, as I mentioned up front, uh, the fact that there's been no real pattern on these votes in other states. I mean, some have passed, some have failed, some have been more heavily funded on one side than the other. Uh, it's been all over the board. But um, in this instance, um, I will say that, and I'm having been in your shoes, Ryan, with campaigns that have gone for a long stretch, and you come down to the closing hours, mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's a lot of time and energy on, on both sides. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll cancel out our votes on this one, but <laughs> I will say that uh, I am glad that Oklahomans are going to have the opportunity to make a say once and for all. It could also be yeah. really big because it's the only thing going on right now. There's yeah. no other elections out there. Yeah, yeah. I think nationally, I think that, you know, whatever happens on, on Tuesday, uh, and of course folks know where I'm at on that deal, but whatever happens on Tuesday, this is going to be a case study for years to come, uh, both in, in turnout, uh, both in, in messaging, uh, what it means to run an election on a standalone ballot. Um, and when we think about the future of the initiative petition process in Oklahoma, do future governors uh, start to put these initiative petitions on standalone standalone elections? Uh, and what does that mean? Is that either good for the question or bad for the question? Um, you know, those those are questions that I think will be studied for a long time to come after this. Well, and it's what it says also is what the voters are interested in and wanting to make a statement about. I mean, they have the opportunity to weigh in on this. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this fifty to 100,000 Oklahomans, I think the statistic that uh, – has been cited by the uh, Yes campaign and the folks that have had convictions uh, over the past several decades. Mm -hmm. uh, those folks, I mean, are they going to come out? Those would not be your normal, many of them, normal targeted audience voters in terms of just a regular election or, you know, or, or have they been identified and will they be turned out in this election? By the same token, I mean, law enforcement and a lot of uh, folks, the medical communities and others that we've seen weigh in on the no side have been very uh, articulate and very forceful trying to get their message out. We've talked about the fact that many of the organized uh, uh, large denominations in the in the state have been working to get their message out on the no side to, to make sure that their folks understand the issues and what they think. Mm -hmm. The state Senate is getting a bill to all but ban gender-affirming care for transgender Oklahomans of any age. Along strict party lines, the state House passed HB 2177 to stop all gender reassigning therapies for minors, including hormones, puberty blockers, and surgery, and bar state funds or private insurers from covering those procedures for anyone, including adults. Neva, what are your thoughts on the passage of this bill? Well, I think no surprise in the House, like you say, in the party line vote, 80 to 18 in the House. Uh, two weeks ago in the Senate, there was a similar bill uh, by uh, Senator Daniels that 
passed. Uh, the only difference, I think, or the major difference would be that in that Senate bill, it doesn't include a prohibition on uh, private insurance and also only applies to minors. Not It does not deal with adults, while the uh, bill by uh, Representatives West and Olson, uh, it, bander, it bans all gender reassignment therapies for minors, but it also uh, bars uh, uh, state funds and private uh, insurers from covering procedures for anyone, and that includes adults. So it's a much more sweeping bill in terms of uh, what what is in it. And I think what we'll see is now the give and take. I mean, we have bill deadline this week. Uh, we'll, we'll see as these bills move uh, to the opposite chamber uh, what happens, whether there can be some collaboration, whether uh, something comes out that's a compromise ultimately between some of this, or whether it just uh, uh, dies for lack of the ability to maneuver it any further. Well, you know, I think especially for those parents out there in Oklahoma, I, I hope that it does die. I mean, you know, for, for whatever reason. Uh, but you know, I try to put yourself in the, in the shoes of a parent right now that uh, is either going to about to go uh, take their child for evaluation and treatment uh, for what may be gender dysphoria um, or maybe people that are already receiving treatment for gender dysphoria. And almost all of the time that treatment uh, is doesn't require medical intervention. Uh, most of the time, at least for a very long time, you don't get to the part where there's medical intervention. And that's because there are standards of care in place. Uh, the physicians that work on this in Oklahoma are very careful and thoughtful. And they understand that these are, you're dealing with, uh, you know, children in very vulnerable, vulnerable situations, both because of the, the medical diagnosis, but also because of society around them. And of course, this legislation makes that harder. But you're also dealing with parents that are trying to navigate something that most parents probably had never even considered uh, would be on their radar screen as a parent. But here they are, and just like every other parent in Oklahoma, they're trying to do the very best for their kid. I think the, the most cruel part of this legislation uh, is that for those individuals that are already uh, receiving medical intervention, that they would have to stop. I mean, that's, that's kind of wild, uh, that the state of Oklahoma would step in and say, at some point, you're going to have to stop taking this medicine that a doctor, a, a medical doctor, said that you should be taking as treatment for the condition that you've been diagnosed for. I think in any other instance, uh, Oklahomans would be appalled at that. And I think that because most Oklahomans don't think about uh, you know, transgender issues or gender dysphoria, and because so much of it has been caught up in a culture war rather than talked about in terms of medical science, um, we, you know, that's that it's separate and apart from uh, maybe other other things like you know cancer or something like that. But um, I, I think for those parents, this is truly terrifying. Uh, what it's going to mean for them and their kids. And and anytime you've got legislation that if it passes, just reasonable regular folks think that they've got to maybe pick up uh, there's everything that they've got here and move to another state for the best interest of their child. I mean, this isn't. You know, this isn't liberals whenever, uh, you know, Trump won and everybody's like, oh, I'm going to go to Canada. Nobody went to Canada. I mean, maybe some people did. Uh, but this is people that are saying these are just regular folks, not probably most of them, not partisans, just regular parents. And now they're thinking, I have to leave this state that I may love, that may be my home, just so that I can get the medical care that my kid's doctor says that they need. The legislature shouldn't be substituting themselves for those decisions. A new poll finds a majority of Oklahoma voters support a moratorium on executions in the state. 
Republican lawmakers and religious leaders released the results of the survey showing three out of four respondents favored pausing executions to ensure the process is fair and just and does not result in the execution of innocent people. Ryan, were you surprised by these results? Well, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I visit with Representative Kevin McDougal quite a bit mm-hmm. uh, on a number of issues, and so he keeps me abreast on this. Uh, I mean, you can't, you can't have a conversation with Representative McDougal, and he doesn't tell you about the fact that Richard Glossop has had three last meals. Uh, you know, what an incredible cruelty to force on anyone uh, regardless of whether you think that, it, that, they, they, that he's literally had three last meals. I think he's been in the chamber twice uh, and strapped to the gurney. Um, I and think so, he had 11 execution dates. 11 execution dates. Um, you know, Representative McDougal and, and many of the people that were on the stage with him will tell you they don't oppose the death penalty. And I think that probably most Oklahomans agree with him. But the other thing that most Oklahomans agree with him on is that if we're going to do it, we got to get it right. And we can't afford to have a system that allows an innocent person to be executed. And so I, I think that if, if we're not confident in, that, confident in that system, this is exactly the right call. Call for that moratorium. Um, it, is, it is so uh, encouraging to see an issue that I think for years had been mired in partisanship uh, to really kind of elevate. Uh, and I think Representative McDougal takes a lot of credit for that, to elevate that conversation beyond partisanship and just say like, listen guys, regardless of how you feel about this, we can all agree we should get it right. And I, and I think the get it right point is what people are focusing on. I mean, one of the things that I thought was interesting, Representative McDougal um, has kind of dusted off and pulled off the shelf that report from six or seven years ago, whenever it was, that was the uh, Oklahoma Death Penalty Review Commission. And it, it's interesting that, that at that point in time, uh, that commission called for um, a call for the extension of an existing moratorium, uh, and they wanted to adopt laws that would basically ensure that uh, folks on death row um, were actually guilty of the crime. I mean, was the essence of what they were saying, and they were wanting to make sure that uh, what would be allowed was to bring forward new evidence, such as you know we know the DNA testing and other things that were not available decades ago uh, certainly have uh, had impact on mm-hmm. uh, cases that have come back up for review in other states and and uh, so that conversation the conversation about uh, uh, being able to. Uh, um, provide compensation to someone wrong, wrongfully convicted and and uh, released back after years of uh, being incarcerated. I mean, those are conversations that we see uh, being talked about nationally uh, in a big way. Certainly, it's come to Oklahoma. Representative McDougal and others have uh, kind of kept that on the front burner, and that's what it takes. I mean, what, wherever someone is on the on the issue personally, I think it, to know that and recognize that it takes particularly in the legislative process, it takes someone that takes this on with a real uh, mission to stay front and center focused on, like you say, every time someone comes into his office, probably something is going to get laced into the conversation that has to deal with uh, uh, with these issues that he's talking about. So, um, you know, we've already seen execution slowed. I mean, the the uh, in January, uh, uh, 
the AG, uh, Gettner Drummond, asked the uh, Court of Criminal Appeals to uh, uh, basically be able to slow down the executions. They agreed uh, with that request. So now there will be uh, at least 60 days between executions. So there, there's a lot of things moving on this. I think it's going to take, as I always say, you have to get all the stakeholders and all of the folks around the table to do the give and take and sort this out because it's a not either or proposition. It's working through this and trying to find the best avenue to get the the best results for uh, not only the question at hand, but to best serve the citizens of Oklahoma. State Superintendent Ryan Walters is coming under fire for disparaging Oklahoma's higher education institutions. At the end of a state board of education meeting, Walters questioned whether the state should be sending its students to Oklahoma colleges and universities. The comments immediately drew criticism from three Republican leaders of House Education Committees. Neva, do you think Walters will face any consequences for his constant comments against education in this state? Well, I mean, I think it's uh, whatever the consequences. I mean, we'll have to. That's a bigger conversation. But I think it it's so fascinating. Here you've got a guy as the superintendent of public instruction, new on the job. Uh, his, uh, you know, the the person who asked him to serve in his cabinet as the cabinet secretary, Governor Stitt, in his state of the state less than a month ago, he challenged OU and OSU to grow and deliver um, a quality education, I believe is the term he used, to 40,000 students by 2030. And now you have this superintendent uh, coming in and basically just uh, launching almost from the, f- the first days uh, all of his you know great concerns, as he it spoke about it, about the state universities and really kind of drilling down on the, uh, the, the specific programs that he wanted information on when he got the information back. I mean, the, the uh, higher regents, uh, state regents, uh, took time, provided the information he requested, and what they what came out out of that was that out of all of the budget, I mean, the millions and millions and millions of dollars, it was less than 1%, I mean, a fraction that was being used, expenditures on higher ed on uh, DEI programs. So, um, you know, again, I mean, it, it's this, it's, it's this uh, rhetoric uh, that he continues to uh, kind of convey out there and yet not talk specifics, which has got him really in the crosshairs with the legislature. Yeah. I mean, even this week, I mean, Representative McBride and Representative Rhonda Baker, uh, Mark McBride, Rhonda Baker, two of the key folks in the House in terms of their education chair, chair positions. I mean, they issued a release and basically said, look, uh, Mr. Superintendent, you need to hire a federal programs director. I mean, they were aware of the fact that uh, the former deputy superintendent uh, of the federal programs at the State Department had left uh, uh, prior to um, uh, Ryan Walters taking office. So, I mean, there there are real concerns there. I mean, if you don't have someone in place with the federal uh, application deadlines coming up that everyone that deals in government... uh, you know, knows these deadlines that come come up uh, uh, repeatedly. Now this one looming, the implications are tremendous. I mean, in terms of what the impact might be in losing funding that is so necessary, and and it it makes everyone, uh, not only legislators but superintendents and parents and teachers all across the board, begin to wonder 
um, who's taking care of business at the at mm-hmm. the State Department. And so until he can get that under control and give some confidence uh, to uh, all of you know all of the folks paying attention, it's going to be a real problem for him being able to get anything seriously done. Right. I mean, do the, does he just wake up in the morning and draw a name out of the hat of somebody that he's going to mm-hmm. pick a fight with? I it just it's it's really astonishing, uh, and to see Republican lawmakers stand up and say, "Stay in your lane," uh, and not only stay in your lane, but you know, do a good job of driving in your lane. And I think that you know the federal officer. I've heard that there are other key staff members uh, and positions in that office that have not been filled. Uh, you know, you would think that that would be job one. Uh, I mean, you compare that to you know you know yeah, sure he's brand new on the job, but you compare that to the attorney general getting her Drummond. Uh, you know, who's, who was staffed up even before the inauguration. Uh, you know, they, they walked into office on day one and hit the ground running, and I'm sure we'll, and that's why we're always talking about him. And instead of talking, we're not talking about Gittner Drummond in, you know, some, you know, some petty fight uh, that he has picked. I mean, you know, he's, he's got conflicts, but he picks them, and he d- does so very deliberately and strategically. Uh, this is just, you know, just com- kind of chaos uh, in the State Department of Education right now. And it's it's difficult to see how uh, su- uh, Superintendent Walters can have, be successful at all uh, with anything that he even cares about. Um, now, of course, I, I don't like a lot of the things that he cares about, and, and I kind of don't want him to be successful, but I also don't want chaos uh, and confusion in our top education uh, uh, office in the state of Oklahoma. You know, teachers don't need to worry about that. Superintendents don't need to worry about that. And if, if he really wants to get any of his things done, uh, you would think at some point he's got to you know, draw back and say, this, we're gonna, this is about governing now. This isn't about running a campaign. This isn't about getting hits on TikTok or likes on TikTok. What do you get on TikTok? I don't know what you get on TikTok. <laughs> What's, I mean, you know, I wouldn't know. <laughs> some, well, some of our younger viewers, please tell us uh, what, it, what it means to get something on. Or Ryan Walters, yeah, Superintendent Walters, call us and let us know what it means. Is it, is it a thumbs up? I don't know. Uh, but whatever that is that he's chasing, uh, is not good for the state. And, and self, uh, if he just looks at it from a self-interest uh, perspective, which I, I hope that our uh, elected officials look beyond that, but if he was just looking at his own self-interest, it's in your self-interest and for your agenda if you, uh, you know, stop playing these games. Well, and, and it's not a partisan issue. I mean, yeah. the, the Republicans didn't, don't relish the idea that they have to continually uh, kind of take someone to task that's an elected official in their party. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're talking about education, and we're talking about the impact on virtually every household in the state of Oklahoma in some fashion. And so it has to be front and center, uh, just like the all of the discussion on education bills across the board have to be upfront, something that all lawmakers on both sides of the aisle take very seriously, because these are the kind of issues that they hear from their constituents on a regular basis. And is there concern that we've got someone like as prominent as Ryan Walters actually showing, shining a bad light on the Republican Party itself? Well, I mean, I think that um, I think that the issues are really the issues, and it's not the party and what it's doing to the party, or you know what the reaction is on that on that side. I think it is more here's a newly elected official with a job to do. Uh, he's taken one approach, and he's gotten a lot of pushback for very specific reasons by people that also hold a title and have responsibilities to. Um, uh, be in the be in the forefront of discussions and make decisions that are good for Oklahoma. So, you know, what will be interesting is, I mean, the 
as cabinet secretary, I mean, that appointment, that nomination, renomination, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. for uh, uh, Walters will have to go through Senate confirmation during this session. And, uh, you know, you, you, there's been some rumbles and scuttle, and you always hear people that just kind of naturally react to these things in the moment, uh, saying that this is uh, something that might not bode well for the governor. He, he might have to think or, or th- uh, push pull back on wanting Secretary Walters to continue in that role. I don't know what that discussion is, and obviously we'll wait and see, but it's another piece that kind of adds to this ongoing uh, conversation and, you know, too much drama in the in the eyes of, I think, many that have to deal with this on a regular basis out at the state capitol. And, and I'm intrigued, if there are conversations between the governor and the superintendent, what those conversations sound like right now. Uh, and. and you know, I, I've, I've got to think that Governor Stitt is saying, uh, you know, you know br- bring it back in. We've got things to do. We, we've got legislation to pass. We've got policies to advance. You can't go out and have the sideshow. That's at least what I'm thinking is probably happening. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that Governor Stitt is one to, to mince words uh, whenever he's having a conversation with the cabinet secretary like this. But who knows? Uh, maybe we'll find out one of these days. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org.